Well, once again, welcome this morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and this is only Lesson 63, as I've been counting. I think I'm correct on that. So we're actually going through it very much more quickly than we typically would for those of you who may think we're chronicling along. This morning, we're continuing to listen to the answer of Jesus to the Pharisees' question, who gave you the right to shut down our commercial venture in the court of the Gentiles? Remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that, what we call Palm Sunday, and as he entered, he went to the temple. And the temple is the temple that Herod had embellished. It was the, what is called the second temple that had been completed under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 520 A.D. when the Persians allowed the Jews who had been put in captivity by the Babylonians to go back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. But it was a much smaller temple than the temple that Solomon had built 500 or so years before. And the Babylonians, you remember, had destroyed that original temple. So this smaller temple was on that site, and when Herod, called Herod the Great, becomes king, in order to, at least partially so, part of his motivation was in order to ingratiate himself with the Jews, he, elabor- he builds an elaborate complex called the Temple Grounds. And part of that elaboration or that enlargement is called the court of the Gentiles. A court which had existed before but was much smaller where those non-Jewish men and women, men especially, who were called God-fearers. You remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 is called a God-fearer. And they would come to the temple and come into this court and because they were not Jews, they were not allowed to go any further. But at least in this court, they could stand and pray and worship the God of Israel. But what has happened by the time of Jesus is, this court has become a huge collection of all kinds of merchandising. And you remember the primary merchandising is the exchange of money from the worldly money into the, if you would, acceptable money of the temple in order to purchase the animal for sacrifice. Now, that isn't condemned, but it's all this merchandising and this activity that is in the court of the Gentiles so that a Gentile coming in with the desire to worship the God of Israel, it's like standing... How many of you have been in um, Times Square? Times Square is a very busy, loud place. And so it's like being in Times Square. How do you do this? And so Jesus enters and he sees this. And you see an example of the ire of the God of glory against those who have put impediments or stumbling stones 
disallowing or at least making it very difficult for those who want to worship him to be able to worship him. Who gave you this authority? We're the priests. We have the authority and we said it can be done. Who are you? Which is their answer. So Jesus is answering them, not directly, but he's answering them, you remember, through a series of three parables. Last week we dealt with the first parable. Today is the third, uh, second one. So let's read it. Verse 33, chapter 21 of Matthew. He says, hear another parable. Let me tell you another illustration of your rejection and its consequences. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he put up a fence around it. And he dug a wine press in it. And he built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, when we go through this parable, I want you to be aware of two important issues that we probably are aware of, but I want to make sure we accentuate them. The primary issue here is the rejection of the authority of Jesus as God's only Messiah to redeem his people through his death on the cross. The rejection of Jesus as God's Messiah results in fruitlessness or no fruits of righteousness. Those who reject Jesus as God's Messiah, the Bible makes it very clear that we cannot or they cannot or that kind of a person cannot under any circumstance produce any fruit at all that has to do with God's righteousness. And so we as believers would say, well, at least we're not that way. Well, we're not. Because being in Christ, we do produce fruit. Because we cannot be part of the root and not be producing the fruit. This root of God produces fruit. But we also have to be careful when we look at this that we examine our own lives and to see this. That fruit, that lack of fruit in my life. Lack of obedience. Areas where I'm not cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he produces or reproduces God's kind of love in me, the fruit of the Spirit. Remember in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And to the extent that I'm not allowing that, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm jealous, I'm, in, uh, I'm impatient, I'm not kind. I'm not forgiving. Whatever all of those things are, and many other things, to the extent that we are producing, if you would, no fruit of righteousness, we are in those categories, and in those instances, we also are rejecting the authority of the Son of God to rule over us. Amen? So it's very important. You know, we're pretty good about this. We look at the Pharisees and say, I don't know why they couldn't and they should have and all of that. Well, that's all right. But then especially we must allow this word that Matthew gives to us 
And it's the word of the Holy Spirit, not only to show the indictment of God against a people who had rejected him, therefore he will withdraw from them, remember, and go to another people called the Gentiles. But it's also important to see that in their rejection, we must see as the people of God issues of our own rejection on a daily basis. Amen? We have to make sure that we see both sides of this. Now, in your notes, I think we have listed the six main characters, which I don't want to go into. You'll see that listed in your notes. And so Jesus, in verse 33, introduces the parable. And when he does this, he's talking about a vineyard. He's talking about a tower. He's talking about a wine press. When he does that, he's saying things that the leaders will, wait a minute, we've heard these words before. They will remember the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. They're going to remember this. Because what Jesus is saying is literally taking what Isaiah said or the Holy Spirit said through Isaiah to the nation several hundred years before. He's taking what Isaiah said to that nation that had repudiated and rejected God and as a result was sent into exile. He's taking that very prophecy and bringing it forward and putting it into the laps of the Uh, Pharisees and the priests and the elders to say, what happened then, you're doing the very same thing here. Listen to this. Chapter 5 of Isaiah, 1 through 7a, or at least a couple of the, uh, the first two verses anyway. My beloved had a vineyard. You see the word vineyard? Look at verse 33 as we read this. On a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed it out. Uh, <coughs> and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, when Jesus is giving this parable, these men know what he's saying, and so we see in Isaiah three through four. The Lord asks a very poignant question. He says, what more could I have done? What more could I have done than I have already done? Look at verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Isaiah, of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What more has God done? Now, you know, that reminds me of another scripture. Remember 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And what does he say? 2 Peter 1, 4. For everything necessary for life and godliness has been granted to us through God's very precious promises. Do you remember that? And so... As the Lord says to these rebellious people, what more could I do? I did everything I could do. I did everything I could do. And so as we're walking through life, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have thought, I just can't overcome this sin issue. I just can't stop feeling this way or thinking this. It's just too difficult for 
We all wrestle with these kinds of things. And in some way, we think that the power of indwelling sin in us, because it indwells us in the body of flesh, that the power of this indwelling sin that is stirred up by the enemy and stirred up by our fleshly desires, stirred up by the world, etc., that we cannot overcome this, that we just, we can't do it. Our personalities. You see, some of us have a very pleasant and kind personality. Others of you have bombastic personalities. Others of you, I said. And so, thems of us who have sweet and kind personalities, we find it easy to be kind to people. The rest of you have difficulties. And so you say, well, it's my personality. I, I'm fighting against that which is indigenous to me, ingrained in me. And because of that, we give in to sin. But what does the Word of God say? I've done everything necessary. And so as we sit here this morning, is there any sin issue in you or in me that dogs you? Do you know what I mean by that, dogs you? Billy, do you understand that? Is there, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I know how we are as people. Is there any sin issue, any desire, any temptation, any thought, any situation, any relationship, anything at all that dogs us and pounds on us and continues to fight against us and we feel we're not sufficiently overcoming it and resisting it? One of the reasons is that we are not sufficiently satisfied and convinced that God has done everything necessary that we should not give in to that temptation. And secondly, and maybe equally and maybe more importantly, I don't know, we don't want to. You know why we sin, don't you? Why? We want to. I have never been tempted to eat a cockroach. And the reason is, I don't want to. But put something in front of me that is bad for my health. Now, don't listen to this. I want to. And there's the rub. But you see, God has given me everything necessary and has equipped me with the power of his spirit. And has even given me the wanting to. And all of that together. There is no reason why ever I should commit any purposeful sin. Notice why I said purposeful sin. So we see that in these things. Listen to Romans 7, 4. Do you have that in your notes? Has God done everything? Listen to Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brethren, Paul is writing to the church. You have died to the law. In other words, you have died to its authority over you. 
sin and temptation and Satan can no longer make us sin as it could prior to our being delivered from its authority in Christ. Likewise, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, through the death of Jesus. We were included in that death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Galatians what? 2.20. So that you may belong to another. I used to belong to Satan, but now I belong to Christ. To him who has been raised from the dead in order. Here it is. This is the reason why. In order to bear fruit for God. Okay? So let me move along here. I'll be here a week. Verses 34 and 36. So here's what the, 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 the farmer did. The landowner did. He did this and he did. Remember, he planted the vineyard, had a tower, rented it out to tenant. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one. Remember the prophets? And they killed another and stoned another. This is what Israel did to the prophets. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. And so what is happening here is that Jesus is obviously indicting them for their refusal to receive his authority and walk in his authority, rejecting their authority. Let me give you this scripture. It's not in your notes, but it's a very sobering scripture. And when you read it, don't read it as an indictment of Israel. Read it as an indictment of anyone and everyone who rejects God's word. And as we read it, ask the Lord, show me areas in my own life when, where I am doing the very same thing. I can't tell you how often in meeting with two people, let me just say it that way, husband and wife, friends, enemies, whatever, where there have been deep relational hurts over the years. Deep relational hurts over the years. And every time this occurs, another, if you would, invisible brick goes up between them, causing more and more difficult of relationship and fellowship between these two people. Do you follow me in this illustration? And so by the time they come to us, Phil, and I know you've experienced this as an elder and as a covenant group leader. By the time they come to us, this wall is 2,000 feet thick. Isn't that right? Phil, haven't you seen this? It's like, who can overcome it? There's nobody who can overcome this wall. Somebody help me where I was going with this. I've just forgotten. <laughs> I'm sorry, too, no, too many people talking at once. You can only talk one at a time in the classroom. What? Hmm? Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It happens. I'm getting a little older now. I'm 74. This thing happens. Those of you who are not there yet, <laughs> wait. <laughs> right, Chris? Now, every brick is a sin, a rejection, an anger, a bitterness, 
and impatience that is put up as a brick of relational dysfunction. And this is what Israel had done, and this is what these Pharisees and elders were doing. Second Kings 17. And I think beginning with verse 7, if I'm not correct, I may miss the verse a little bit. And until the rest of the chapter, almost 40 verses, the Lord says, I did this and you rejected. I did this and you refused. I did that and you said no. Over and over and over and over and over. He pounds and pounds and pounds it in to make sure that they understand that the central Difficulty and problem has always been their rejection of his autonomy over them. His autonomy. His authority to rule them absolutely and completely as his people. And this is again what the Pharisees and the elders are doing to Jesus. Verse 37. Finally, remember the landowner. He sent all these prophets, his servants in, and they've been killed and stoned. And finally, oh, by the way, what reminds me when they, they killed and stoned and whatever these prophets or these landlords, what verse does that remind you of? John 10.10. 10. Somebody tell me what that says. I have no idea what I just quoted. What does it say? Somebody tell me what John 10.10 10 says. Kill, steal, and destroy. John 10.10. Yes, John 10.10. For the thief cometh but to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. This is the activity of Satan through unbelievers. So finally, this landowner sends his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Did you just see that? May I repeat that again and you underline it in your Bible maybe? Listen to Satan's design in their repudiation of Jesus. Come, let us, what? Kill him. Why? Why? In order, what? That we may have, what? His inheritance. You see, the law was that a landowner has a piece of land and he rents it out just like that. And he goes away to another country, whatever. That's fine. But if things are happening, finally when he sends his own son... If they kill the son, that is a representative of the landowner. That means that there is no one there to be legally owning that land. And they can actually go to law and go to courts and say, this land is no longer belonging to that man. His heir is dead. Therefore, we can have it. And by law, it can get into their hands. This is a legal thing they're talking about. This is actually the case. But we can have his inheritance. You see, Jesus came. Psalm 2, 7 says what? That God will give the Son the inheritance of the nations 
through his obedience. You remember that? I think it's Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. And so Jesus has been sent by the Father to, if you would, inherit his people out of the, the illegal ownership of Satan, who is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, because of the fall of Adam. Remember in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And when that happened, mankind became captured under the authority of Satan and remained so until or unless he is released through the deliverer. And so Jesus, sent by the Father, has come to deliver, set us free, get us out of that captivity as Satan's people and transfer us to the captivity, if you would. We are captured by God. We are his servant into the captivity of God's servants in Christ. Colossians 1.13. God has transferred us. Remember, we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of God. The kingdom of God's dear son. And so, Jesus comes to inherit a people. And the Father says, if you will obey me, I will give you a people for your inheritance. But if we can kill the Son, Satan thinks, if we can kill the Son, if we can stop him from accomplishing the inheritance through his obedience, some kind of way, I can keep my people or I can keep these people as my own and they will never be delivered. That's what the thought of Satan is. Now we know he's absolutely wrong. He's deceived. But that's what's behind here. That's what's behind. Because we are the inheritance of Christ. Amen? And so this is the heir. Come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And he took him and threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. And in this verse, Jesus is obviously predicting his own death. Verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to these tenants? Now here it is. Jesus has created a scenario that was obviously intended to produce the ire, the righteous anger of these Pharisees. <gasps> you mean to tell me that they killed his son? You can just feel their righteous anger of these men welling up. But you see, there's a trap. What does this remind you of? What story does it remind you of? Did I put it in your notes or not? Sometimes I have references and sometimes they're there and they're not. I can't remember. You remember there was a man who had a little sheep. And he raised this little sheep as his own child. And this man was a rich man. But then one day he had to make a sacrifice, so he took the only sheep of a very poor guy next door, and he killed that sheep. <gasps> what? 
And when David heard those words in 2 Samuel 12, he said, he needs to die. Someone needs to pay. It's unrighteous. It's wrong. And David rose up with righteous indignation. Let this man be put to death. And Nathan says, Thou art the man. (gasps) (laughs) It's the same kind of hook. Do you see it? Uh, High priest, Caiaphas, Ananias, any of these others. What should be done to these tenants who so wickedly killed all of these servants and even the man's son? Look at what he did. He gave them all of this. He gave them this. He gave them that. And look what they did to repay him. What she did. He needs to be killed. And he caught them in a trap. Now before we go ahead, let's think about it for ourselves. I can tell you that I am an expert in this. So let me just say it that way before I say something. Gene would tell you I'm an expert. If Gene weren't here this morning, I wouldn't tell you I was an expert, but she'll just tell you. So I need to go ahead and tell you I'm an expert in this. I am not proud of it. It is wrong. I should not be an expert. And it's one of those areas where God has given me everything for life and godliness that can be overcome. And I just need to be obedient to God. Amen. So I don't release myself from any guilt here or any inability. I don't ever release myself from disobeying God for whatever reason. Never release myself. And don't you do either. And so you see something out there. You hear something on television. You watch something. Someone runs a red light. Oh! Anybody in here get upset about that? Someone steals. Someone, whatever. And man, we begin to become put out by that. Am I the only one who does that? Can anybody be honest in here and say, I have been put out by things that happen in this world. Can you imagine those people saying that about that group of people? They're using the wrong word. Those politicians are doing this. These people. Don't we all suffer from this? Amen? Thank you, Ronnie. Here's what we need. And I need, I need this regularly. Every time I begin to experience what I think, I think is righteous indignation. Hey, Celeste, I mean, come on. Every time I begin to think and feel that indignation about something someone did or said, I first need to hear this. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. 
the woman. Thou art the woman. Thou art the man. Every time, James. And if I were to remember that, then my energy would not be spent against throwing spears against something that doesn't exist out there but exists in me. Although it is out there, the problem is not there. It's within me. God is not dishonored if unbelievers are sinning. It's when believers do this. Romans 2.24, because of you, believers, the Jews, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles. We're the only ones who blaspheme the name of God. Unbelievers cannot blaspheme the name of God. And so it's not nearly as significant what they do out there as it is what I do in here, in me. Thou art the man. So I pray for me and I pray for each of you. The next time I get upset, and I know my wife's going to be faithful to remind me of this. I need to remember, Harlan, you're the man. You see, because the Holy Spirit has just allowed me to see or experience something that has created ire in me in order to touch that issue in me. Maybe it's not a theft issue or or whatever issue, but it's some issue in me. Can you say amen? amen? You see, when we read this word, let's not read it as just, oh, look at those people did this and this and that and move along. Allow the Holy Spirit... Say, Father, when I read your word today, speak to my heart and the secret areas and the deep areas of my life that I may be a man and a woman who is a producer of fruit of righteousness and in those categories where the vines of my life are not producing the good grapes, Father, tend to those. Remember John 15. And Jesus now says in verse 41, He will put those wretches, I'm sorry, they said to him, listen what they say. They will put those wretches to a miserable death. (laughs) Wow, thank you for saying that. And let out the venue to other tenants who will give him the fruit of their season. Put them out and give it to other people. And Jesus says, yep, that's exactly what we're going to do. That's exactly what we're going to do. Because you see, when they say that, I don't know whether they were doing it unwittingly or just real dumb or whatever, but they know the word. You see, when they said that, let this group be put out and give it to others. They need to be punished. We need to get that kind of stuff out of, uh, you know, this, the, 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 uh, out of our group. Just get it out of here. When they said that, they are almost quoting the rest of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 5. Remember, what else could I do? I did this and I did that and I did that. What else could I do? And yet they rebelled against me. Listen to these verses 5 and 7. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This is God speaking to those who reject him. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hold. 
and, and, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they will rain, no more rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is a house of Israel. Ooh, we just answered wrong. And this is exactly what happened to Israel in 70, in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Read these words from Isaiah, written during 700 BC. Jesus is re-quoting them somewhat differently, but within the same context in about 33 or 4 AD. And it happens literally in 70 AD when the Romans come in under who? Titus and absolutely decimate the place. It happens. But more than that, this is a spiritual occurrence. And then Jesus says, haven't you ever read the scriptures? This, oh, it's going to be given to another. I said that. In Genesis seventeen four. the Lord says to Abraham, I will bring nations from you. And so you see, Israel will be rejected as God's prime manifestation on the earth. And that manifestation <clears throat> will become the church on the day of resurrection. I'm sorry, the day of Pentecost. That manifestation becomes the church. It doesn't mean that no people in Judaism are not saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus is saved. But Judaism and Jewishness or Israel is no longer God's national proclamation of himself. It's in the church. Got it? He doesn't it isn't that he's not saving any Jews anymore or saving any Muslims anymore or saving any Hindus anymore. He certainly is. But he's not using Judaism and Jewishness in the same way as he used to. That's now gone to the church. And Jesus said to them, verse 42, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, rejecting Jesus is rejecting the very cornerstone and foundation of the kingdom of God of God's rule. And we have to be clear on that. We have to be clear on that. It is a difficulty for me that if I know someone who in the natural sense is kind and loving and generous in the natural sense, is a good person. But that person simply does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah having come to deliver his people through his own death. I don't believe that. I, I think there's other ways. My religion teaches me this, whatever. And it's difficult for me. I, I wrestle with this. Lord, you mean to tell me that this person who lives this way will not be a part of your kingdom because that person has... And they wouldn't say reject. I just don't believe. Well, not believing is what? Rejecting. I mean, if, if I don't receive and believe your advice to me as my doctor, am I not rejecting you? Right? There's a rejection here. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm rejecting your advice, so I'm not taking any of the medications. I will 
suffer as a result of that something. I said, no, I don't believe what you're telling me here. So I don't take them and, and over. <gasps> and so not to believe in God's economy. And you're right. You may not take it a rejection. But not to believe in God's economy is to reject. And I have, I have, do any of you wrestle with this um, in your own hearts? Yes. But I must believe the word of him who went to the cross, who was buried, and who rose again on the third day as the authority that when he says this, this is the way it is, whether I like it, believe it, am confused about it, or anything else of it. And so I'm going to walk in it. Jesus is the rock upon which his church, his people, are built. Let me give you a couple of, remember the rock? Paul says that this rock followed them in the wilderness. Do you remember that? It was the rock of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, for they drank from the spiritual rocks that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Talking about the Jews in the wilderness. Go to Exodus 17. You don't have to turn there now. And you're going to find that after the waters are bitter, you know, the, Moses throws a tree in there, an emblem of the cross, and it becomes sweet. And then they don't have any drinking water, so Moses is commanded what? Strike this rock. You remember that? And water will flow. So the rock is struck and the water flows. In Exodus 33, the Lord says, Moses, you want to see my glory? I'm going to put you in the rock. It's the same kind of rock as in Exodus 17. And I'm going to put you in the cleft. What? The, the split part of the rock. I'm going to cover you and put you inside and protect you within the confines of this rock. And I'm going to pass by. And all you're going to do is see my hinder parts because no one can see my face and live. And remember, he passes before and he says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember, loving kindness, slow to anger. Do you remember those verses? And so we see in Exodus 17 and 33 that the same rock the issue of that rock is being struck in 17 to bring forth the water. Is being, has a cleft in it, if you would, a split in it. You remember the cutting so that the people are protected and are able to see and experience the presence of God. But then when you go to Numbers chapter 20, they've been out there for a while now. And they're upset again. And they ain't got no water. And the Lord says to Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses gets up there and says, you hard-headed, stiff-necked people. And he slaps the rock with his rod. And the water comes forth. But God said, speak to the rock. And then he says to Moses, because you did not honor me in the face or the midst of these people, you ain't going into the promised land. Right? You remember that? Did you see the movie? <laughs> now, why, why, what was so significant about the rock? He's already struck it over here. Why not hit it again? Because you see, the word for rock is a different word for rock. The word for rock in the first couple of places is a word for a boulder, a, a, a big old you know, piece of rock. But in the second rock, 
It is a lofty, exalted rock. It's a picture of Christ exalted, having already been struck and split. And now the striking and the splitting of God, therefore giving out of the Spirit the water for his people has been accomplished. Ain't no more splitting and striking this rock because he rules and reigns and returns. Just go back and look at the Hebrew for the word rock in those places. And you'll see the distinction. And people say, I wonder why, I wonder why. Well, just look at the word rock. It's a different word. Jesus is telling them, you're rejecting the only rock foundation upon which the house of God must be built. This rock is God's own son, the eternal foundation of the church. So this morning, let's not be those who in any way or category reject him, but if we do, let's be careful and quick to confess and always hold ourselves as the ones who were the pro- the ones who are the problem rather than looking elsewhere and aghast at others let's make sure we look aghast at our own issues of disobedience amen see you next sunday